Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to this presentation hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies, located at Durham University in Durham, England, a Center for Catholic Theology in the Public Academy. For more information, please visit our website at centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following paper was presented by Tricia Bruce of Maryville College in Tennessee as part of the Catholic Theology Research Seminar Series. The paper is entitled, Parishes and Placemaking, Observations from the Making and Unmaking of Catholicism in Modern Communities. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity uh, to be here. Thank you especially to Karen Kilby, to Paul Murray, to uh, Matthew Guest, uh, and to so many who have done so much, Jane and Teresa as well, um, to help organize this event. I'm grateful to be here uh, today. Thanks also to the grad students uh, for being here. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to get to know you. And then also Dr. Kane, who is the man who actually taught me introductory sociology, sociology 101. So uh, he is certainly one of the reasons that I am standing in front of you today. Today. Um, as a sociologist, of course, the work that I do is very much informed by this perspective that tries to see uh, Catholicism and religion through the sociological imagination. Uh, sociological imagination, of course, is a very famous uh, adage from uh, a, a man called C. Wright Mills, perhaps you've heard of before, the motorcycle riding sociologist from Waco, Texas, uh, who, who gives us, yeah, we've got some Texans in the room tonight, uh, who gives us this term which allows us to see uh, the role and the interplay of structure and agency in shaping people's lives. And so that's the lens that I, I bring to my study of Catholicism, which shares and overlaps with so many other uh, ways to study Catholicism, but also brings its own perspective. You know, when I've, I've done work for for example, for the U.S. bishops, and I've tried to explain in that context, you know, I'm, I'm taking a portrait, I'm taking a picture of what Catholicism looks like, and then you all take that picture and then do do things with it, you know, make decisions. Um, I had an exchange at one point with a, a priest who, uh, whom I had interviewed for a project, and he was trying to ascertain what this sociological perspective was all about, and after some emails back and forth, he, he came back and he said to me, um, and I, I wrote down what what he said in his email. He said, well, it strikes me as being something like aliens coming down from space to study this strange creature called human beings. There's no right or wrong to it. Rather, it's just a study of behaviors and attitudes described in their own words. To which I said, okay, yeah, that's, that's kind of close, <laughs> kind of close. So this is this is the lens I bring. Um, here in the, the land of Shakespeare, perhaps inspired by that, or maybe the pub down the road, I'm not sure. Um, I've structured my talk today in five acts, but I promise we will survive till the end to go to dinner, uh, so not in a classically Shakespearean form. Uh, in the first act, uh, I will... After an introduction, I will briefly get you, get, give you a sense of American Catholicism, some of the contexts and trends uh, in which we're talking about placemaking today. Um, then I'm going to move into um, the notion of place as a way to understand Catholicism and how Catholics do Catholicism in local communities. And I'm going to use, uh, in the sort of the meat of the talk, two major examples to describe placemaking, one being personal parishes, which I'll talk more about and which constitute the focus of my most recent book, and the other being what might colloquially be called church conversions or spaces that transition from religious use into other purposes. And this is a new study uh, that I'm working on. And then we'll kind of wrap it up um, in, the, in the end. So first, then, to offer some context. Uh, now, some of you may be pretty familiar with American Catholicism, others less so. But I wanted to provide some general brushstrokes here to give you a sense of really what, what can be considered both stability and massive flux in American Catholicism. Um, as a proportion of all Americans, Catholics constitute roughly a quarter, a little bit less. Uh, you can see this green line, uh, this is pulling from Gallup data, uh, that exhibits uh, the proportion of Catholics as a percentage of Americans overall from as far back as 1948 um, all the way to 2016 is the latest number here. And you can see that while that line moves a little bit, it's been pretty stable. So American Catholics have constituted a pretty sizable and stable uh, population among Americans overall, such that now the population, depending on which source you look to, but it's somewhere in the range of 74 million people um, in the United States. 
Uh, of course, what this masks, though, is that there's massive transition and change even within that proportion um, over time. Uh, in fact, um, the, uh, to take one example, the proportion of foreign-born American Catholics has gone up substantially. So in 1975, about 1 in 10 American Catholics were born elsewhere uh, and then living in the United States. Now it's more than 1 in 4. So there's a rise in the foreign-born population among American Catholics. Uh, what we also don't see here is that there's actually been massive disaffiliation from the church, too. So a lot of people have left the church. Now, Catholicism, of course, is the largest denomination if we sort of slice and dice by denominations. There are more Protestants than Catholics as a whole, but if you slice and dice by denominations, there are more Catholics. So you would expect there to be more ex-Catholics. But I'll tell you what, there are a lot of ex-Catholics, a lot of ex-Catholics in the United States. Um, and if those, uh, of course, were still contained here, we would actually see a rise. Uh, so what's happening is there's some replacement happening. Uh, Foreign-born uh, um, Catholics are actually replacing some of those who have, have left the church. Another thing we're seeing, too, is that there's um, a move from what some scholars have called uh, the core to the periphery. So the Catholics who are there, who are affiliated with the church, are not going to, to church as often. They're not going to mass as often. They're not participating in the sacraments as often. If you track, for example, baptisms, baptisms are really down. Baptisms are not reflecting the proportion of Catholics that you see in these numbers here, which portends uh, a future even of, of lower levels of affiliation as well. Um, and then one other backdrop here um, is that on the, at the parish level, locally, Catholic parishes are supersizing, so they're getting bigger and bigger, and they're also diversifying. And there are a number of reasons for this. Um, uh, with regard to diversity, there are higher levels of racial and ethnic diversity in the American Catholic Church than ever before. Uh, much of this is driven by the rise of Hispanic and Latino Catholics, um, so a huge proportion of American Catholics um, are Hispanic Latino, but there's also a, a rising number of uh, Asian and Pacific Islander Catholics. That work that I mentioned a moment ago for the U.S. bishop was actually, bishops that I did, was actually looking at API Catholics, trying to understand that, and then small but significant numbers of black Catholics as well. Um, and then other forms of diversity therein, right? High levels of political, cultural, ideological, ideological diversity. And then the supersizing, of course, it comes also from the lower numbers of priests available to, uh, to pastor churches. And so there are a lot of really creative uh, combinations and reconfigurations. And I know some of that is happening here locally as well. Uh, whereby priests, uh, a smaller number of priests are serving a larger population. So you have uh, what, what is uh, considered this sort of supersizing. Um, and a number of parishes that are closing, a number of dioceses that are restructuring. And then this has been a particularly acute since 2002, the crisis of abuse, um, which Matthew mentioned. I, I wrote my first book related to that. So this is the context in which I, as a sociologist of Catholicism, am conducting my research. All right, this is the, this is the place, this is the context. So my question today is this, right? how do Catholics, or if we want to pull this out, how does the Catholic Church as an institution, and we can think sociologically about what that means too, make place in this context? How do you make place? Um, or if we push that even further, how do you unmake place? So if we're seeing this sort of transition and organizational change in response to these changing contexts, what does that process look like? All right, considered more broadly, if we think about place, you know, place helps us to understand religious change in modern communities. There's a sociologist uh, in 2000, Thomas Guerin, uh, wrote that sociologists have, uh, quote, a stake in place no matter what they analyze or how. But we have to pay attention to place. You know, it shapes our identities. It shapes our collectivities. It shapes our interactions um, with our surroundings, right? We live in place. We interact with place. We shape place. In this sense, we can think of place as being both a social and a material construction. 
you know, in sociology, we often talk about the social construction of realities in various forms, um, how we input uh, into a life that then comes to, to act back upon us. So we see that social element, but we also see that material element. Today, I play with both of those ideas. You know, the idea that we make place, there's a cultural element to that, a social construction element to it. But I'm also going to play with this idea of the material construction of place, the stuff. The, the buildings, the constructed elements, um, and how that, too, is a way, actually, to make local Catholicism. So in answering this question, I, I focus on what can be considered, a, a, um, I think, an understudied area of, of local religion, certainly in the context of, of Catholicism, which is church building. So this is going to become a theme uh, in, in the remainder of my talk. Um, or to, to go back to the uh, Shakespearean uh, view here, the, I don't know if it's the protagonist or the antagonist, but we'll, we'll find out. But buildings are going to be a major character in this story. Um, so this is going to draw our, our attention to questions of infrastructure, right? which turns out to be not just about buildings, uh, but it turns out to be about things like power and inequality and ownership. Uh, and, and inclusion, right? and in collective meaning-making. So when we talk about buildings, it ends up actually going far beyond just the buildings. Uh, to quote, again, the sociologist Guerin, uh, he, he writes that buildings, quote, stabilize social life and give structure to social institutions. Uh, so this is a way that, that we can um, think about how, how Catholicism is literally built, you know, how, how place is made. Uh, oftentimes, this perspective is talked about from a very ground-up, ethnographic, cultural sort of perspective. You know, thinking about how we make place through negotiation in our neighborhoods, you know, those who dwell there, business folks, um, those who, who live and reside and interact. This is how we make place. This is kind of an agency-driven uh, place argument. We have famous ethnographers such as, uh, you know, oh, folks like Elijah Anderson, Matt Desmond, um, Alice Goffman, who have written about communities and, and how place is constructed from that ethnographic perspective. Here, I'm bringing in one that's going to appreciate and understand that cultural, urban side of placemaking, but also appreciate more heavily the role of structure. So how is it that placemaking in Catholicism is actually both bottom-up, agency-driven, but also top-down, structurally-driven? And we can see this through through buildings. So here's the spoiler alert. This is where I'm going with this um, as we get into to this. Is that my my contention here today is that placemaking is actually a combination of this sort of bottom up, right? Cultural, um, you know, the, the types of things that ethnographers help draw our attention to the agency driven cultural construction of placemaking, right? For local Catholics, but it's also top-down, right? It's also driven by institutional elites, institutional authorities. And we can see that interplay of placemaking as coming up in nexus or that synergy between bottom-up and top-down by paying attention to buildings. This is really a, a, um, an argument that, that hits the core of what sociologists are often thinking about in terms of this interplay between structure and agency. The reason I do this too, in part, is that so much of the literature in congregations and local religious making is, is of late has emphasized so much agency, lived religion, and this sort of you know organic cultural um, making of religion. And as someone who studies Catholics, I kept having to say like, oh, that's you know that's not exactly how it works all the time, right? You know, there's not full agency in this context, um, and so I'm, I'm mindful um, of that interplay. To build this argument, I'm going to draw on a few different sources. Um, the work that I did related to my book was on personal parishes, um, and that included a, um, a national study in the United States of personal parishes of dioceses. So I sent out that survey to all dioceses, got about an 80% response rate from dioceses responding to how they use personal parishes. Followed up that with case studies throughout the country, went to personal parishes, and then interviewed uh, priests and uh, parishioners and diocesan leaders and bishops who were involved in the, the making of these personal parishes. Um, this project is one that um, I've collaborated with a couple colleagues, Gary Adler and Brian Starks, on, and we have an edited volume coming out related to, to parishes, um, and then this is the, the new project. Um, and so the new project has a handful of, of interviews at this point, and you'll see some of that data in here as well, and, and field research, but it's the, the new stuff that's coming. All right, so we know that place-making is an important part of how religious adherents sort of localize and own their faith. Um, this is actually my, my home parish in San Antonio, Texas, from when I grew up. 
Right. So as, this is where I was baptized. Um, this is where I had my first communion. Uh, sociologists of place write about place attachment as part of this process by which we come to sort of feel ownership and, and you know, love, if you want to call it that, um, for, for place. And certainly Catholics often feel that for their parishes. Um, I do certainly for St. Matthew's and my, my family is still there. Ironically, of course, this should be a really short talk because place making and Catholicism, I mean, Catholics actually don't have to make place, right? Place is given to them. Because as it turns out, right, technically, canonically, right, parish means place. And so parish, as much as we often say parish and we refer to this sort of building, parish is actually territory. And if you, and this, I know this is a strong legacy of this in the Anglican tradition as well, um, but you know, if, technically, canonically, you, you, know, you move into an area and so your residency actually makes place for you. So this is a very structural argument. You don't have to make place, place is made for you. So I live on this block and that means I go to this parish. Uh, now we know, of course, that, that Catholics, certainly American Catholics, have never been very good at uh, following rules or <laughs> um, you know, doing what the hierarchy says. Um, maybe they were a little better at it before, but not really. I mean, even at the, the very origins of uh, parishes in the United States, uh, and I, I write about some of this history in my book, you know, Catholics began to choose parishes for other reasons. So territory was not the sole rationale by which they made place. So what did they look to? Well, oftentimes they looked to other sources of identity, like ethnicity and language. They wanted to be in a parish with others who were, were like them in various ways, who understood their struggle, perhaps had a similar immigration history, perhaps had a similar um, language and cultural preferences. All right, so parish right away began to take on this different connotation, particularly in the American context. Um, and this, this also, of course, came with a number of uh, battles even, some highly contentious ones really um, early on in the development of American Catholicism, whereby uh, lay boards were sort of mobilizing around this model of Protestant congregationalism, which was butting heads with a more hierarchical form of the church. Um, but what happens then is that you get this sort of dual or twin model of parish building, um, that emerges both through national parishes early on, uh, but my focus now is on in more contemporary sense, which is the construction of personal parishes, personal parishes. All right, so if, if most parishes are territorial, they serve the neighborhood. It turns out that canon law, and this is, uh, by the way, the most recent iteration of canon law, which is 1983, which is actually the sort of, it was even referred to as almost the last conciliar document of Vatican II. So you have to think of this as a Vatican II document, even though it's 1983, but hey, the you know, church moves slowly, right? You know, this, it's actually pretty fast. Um, so this is the latest one we have, it's 1983. But you'll notice in this, uh, in this code, this is Canon 518, I'll let you read it here. But it's really kind of interesting, right? It sort of codifies the fact that, that, you know, the territorial thing is still important. We still do that. Uh, but also there is this other way by which Catholics can make place or more specifically by which bishops can make place for Catholics who want to make place that way, um, which is by establishing personal parishes. And you can see the rationale here, right? Okay. Language, nationality. This is sort of the most common form. Um, but this is my favorite part, right? or even for some other reason. <laughs> so this just opens it up, right? This just opens it up. Um, and, and so this becomes really a, um, a moment, an institutional opportunity, to use the language of social movement theorists, whereby bishops can actually creatively find a way to help Catholics make place that goes beyond uh, making territory as their parish. Right. Um, and, and this is also especially important for Catholics who, are, who might be considered in, in more sort of marginalized communities, whether it's in terms of their, their ethnicity or in terms of um, race and a racialized hierarchy um, in the United States context or otherwise, or in terms of the liturgical preference or their orientation towards who knows what. I mean, this is sort of this carves out a space whereby Catholics who don't feel um, in place at their territorial parish, they don't feel ownership, they don't feel at home, uh, a personal parish can provide this option uh, for them to the extent that it is available.
All right, so what, what I trace in this particular talk is the role of buildings in this, okay? So, you know, the whole book's about personal parachutes, so you can check that out. Um, so what I pulled out today, what I'm trying to think through more so, and didn't necessarily do explicitly in the book, is how, what do buildings tell us? If we, if we trace the structural and material placemaking that happens in both in personal parishes and then, and then also in the sort of restructuring and, and rethinking of parish structures in American communities, what does that tell us about how Catholics make place um, and how that is both up, um, from the bottom up and from the top down? Um, a parish, of course, is a building too. You know, there is this this uh, canonical element too that says that people need to be in a place. So there's the building element to it. But we realize right away that um, this building element is also going to introduce a number of um, uh, key examples of how authorities are actually shaping the placemaking of of local Catholics. So I'm going to point out three ways here that buildings matter in personal parishes. Right? So how do buildings matter? One thing, especially when you're thinking about the context of parish and placemaking as being territorial, territorially driven, is that if you sort of carve out and you understand geography and you make territorial parishes and you build them, it is very difficult then to move those buildings. Uh, at, at different moments in Catholic history in the United States, there are some bishops who really prioritize the idea of Catholics having a territorial parish on their block, really, which was sort of this, you know, idyllic notion of, well, you walk to the parish, and of course, maybe your school's there too, right, and, and that's your full community, and so we should have a lot of parishes. Uh, so in some cases, and if you have the resources to do it, there was a proliferation of buildings, of parishes. And if you look at the maps of territorial <laughs> parishes, uh, you know, when this is happening, then they're carved out into pretty small, like one square mile blocks in some cases, right? Each one has um, a parish. Um, you fast forward into the context that I described at the beginning of this talk, and this creates a bit of a problem, right? Because you can't move the buildings, okay? Um, and what happens too is that people people are moving. People are moving actually for lots of different reasons. Um, you know, if you take a city like St. Louis, for example, you had a, a huge population of white Catholics uh, who then, like many Catholics, and actually not at, the, at quite the level of some other religious groups, but like many other whites in the area, there was white flight, right? A huge influx of African Americans um, into downtown St. Louis area for a variety of, of policy and structural reasons, and all the Catholics fled. All right, so you have a core downtown with all these parishes, uh, buildings, uh, and the Catholics are elsewhere. So the way that personal parishes come into this in a modern sense is that bishops have gotten a little bit creative using that can canon law designation to say, well, okay, I don't want to get rid of this church building. So what I can do is actually identify a special population of Catholics and say, you go there. They don't live there. But you can say, you go there. So like, for example, uh, from one of the, the Vietnamese priests that I interviewed who uh, led a personal parish, he said, well, before we moved to, to this parish, the, the population was kind of going down, you know, the former parish. So they decided to close it. Okay, but before they were doing that, they saw the need of the Vietnamese community and how it was growing. So they gave us a choice. They said, instead of closing this, this other building, this parish, they're going to close this one and allow us to move in there. So they essentially take this group of Vietnamese Catholics and say, well, we're, you know, we would have closed this church building otherwise because there's not enough territorial Catholics here to justify it, but we're going to pick you, the Vietnamese Catholics, up and say, go there. And sometimes that means driving a long way for them. Maybe it's nowhere near their home, but they can go there. All right. Um, and... And in another example, uh, this picture is a little bit dark. It was a, a cloudy day. Um, but this was actually a very beautiful church. It was originally designated as a uh, territorial parish. And it happened to have a pretty large Hispanic uh, Latino population. Given the architecture, it was actually pretty expensive also to maintain. Um, and so it was at risk of being closed. And the Hispanic Latino population that was attending this sort of bottom-up agency culture, they, that was their parish, uh, they, they, they couldn't afford to keep it up. So the bishop essentially said, well, you, 
we're going to designate this other church over here as a personal parish for Hispanic Latinos, and we're going to have the traditional Latin mass folks who are coming in with some of the resources of the FSSP and some of these other uh, uh, groups that have mobilized priests and otherwise who have the money, and give them this church building, which happens to also be very well suited for the traditional Latin mass. So you had originally territorially a Hispanic Latino population who was sort of neighborhood focused because this is this is actually in St. Louis um, and who was attending this parish and sort of this that's that's where they went. It was their local parish uh, and it was at risk of closure because of the expense of the building. And so they picked them up, said that we're going to designate this parish for you and we're going to designate this parish uh, to focus on the traditional Latin mass. Ironically, too, this actually helps to preserve Catholic space in the city, this sort of structural, almost symbolic message about Catholicism in the city. Um, so it, it, another way to put this is that personal parish status for bishops became a way to save church buildings. Because otherwise, again, if the territory doesn't uh, justify it, then you have to close it down. Uh, this, um, also from St. Louis, is a Great example of this. So this particular church building, right, it was it was a territorial parish, and it was um, at one point a really well-known uh, parish. It was even called the Rome of the West. Um, and I've, I've, I've written about the St. Louis Diocese um, case, actually, in a separate article. You can probably find it on my website. But in any case, this particular parish um, had this reputation of being this uh, beautiful cathedral. And it's my picture doesn't do it justice. I had to tag two pictures together, but it is proximate to the arch. So when they were actually building the arch um, in the 60s, they raised everything on the riverfront with the exception of this church building. Um, so they took everything down. So they wanted to, to save this. The city did. Um, but then the, the Catholic diocese had to make the decision of, well, what do we do with this parish? Because nobody is living downtown. Again, the sort of dynamic of especially white Catholic flight a high population of African Americans, a small percentage of whom are Catholic. They, you know, it doesn't make sense to have this as a parish. Um, so what happened is that it actually got designated as a personal parish. The decree and the the formal decree from the the bishop um, at the time in 2005 was it was established as a personal parish quote for reason of its history and sacred architecture. Okay, remember the canon law. This is for some other reason. This is for some other reason, right? And there, and there's a whole host of them here too. There's some for young musicians. There's some for the homeless. I mean, it's, it's yeah. But this was um, specifically recognizing the history and sacred architecture. So you have uh, folks from from uh, various Catholic dioceses sort of talking about you know this dynamic of of using personal parish um, canonically as a way to save buildings in a sense and as a way to sort of work around the, the placemaking that would otherwise happen by way of territory. Um, I'll let you read this uh, one response from a, a diocesan representative. You know, we had to save it, so we had to come up with a way. So this is really an entrepreneurial response of bishops to save parishes. Bishops will do almost anything they can, or in my experience, to try to, to not close parishes, especially or not close church buildings, especially when they're uh, as beautiful as, as that or as, you know, if they speak something in terms of the symbolic presence of Catholicism in the city. All right, so people can't move, churches cannot. Um, we also know uh, when we think of buildings in the case of personal <laughs> parishes that, that's, that it's contested, okay? So if we talk about making place and you think about that social construction and more of the, the cultural sort of home dynamic, I want to make place in a parish, um, it turns out that, that this is not evenly experienced among Catholics. Some Catholics find, find it very difficult to make place in their home parish, Right? So they may show up and feel unwelcome, or they may show up and not be given the same access to uh, the resources of the parish that others are. So it becomes a, a power struggle, really. A few quotes that, that highlight this across the board. Right? The first one refer, refers to even parking lot battles. Right? You know, one community coming in, another one coming in, and there's sort of glares in the parking lot. Uh, this is a, a painful one, too. This is a, a priest describing his experience in a parish where they're trying to meet, and he was told he was going to get the keys, and they wouldn't even give him the keys to the space. And this is someone, I mean, they were part of the parish. 
talking about trying to make place in the parish um, and, and the, that tension over the actual building space um, such that some were excluded um, and, and others were, uh, were not. And it's, it's worth mentioning too, I mean, usually this is, ha- this is people of color, right? So this is people of color sort of navigating uh, for white space, lobbying for white space. The same thing was true in this next example this one, and I've, I've shortened the, the quote um, a little bit so I can tell you the, the full story. Um, anytime I shorten it, I, I do it with ellipses so you can, you can see here. But I'll kind of tell you what's happening in this one. Essentially, there's a, a community of Hispanic Latinos who have been um, itinerant. This is a, a diocese in the Northeast, moving from parish to parish to parish. And people kept, you know, would make comments like, when are they going to find their own place? Or why are they using our space? Um, and, and they were very much treated like renters. Um, so uh, when uh, big celebrations would come up, like, for example, celebrations related to Our Lady of Guadalupe, they would have a celebration and then always, always clean up. Now, um, in this particular diocese, the community was eventually given a personal parish. They made place, that, they were given a place that was designated for Hispanic Latino Catholics, which, by the way, the baptism rate at that parish is outpacing that of all, it's cannibalizing now, all of the other parishes, which is sort of ironic. But the first time they had the Our Lady of Guadalupe festival there, the next day the pastor, as he says here, he shows up everything's just gone he's like what happened you know where is everything there were flowers it had been a big celebration um and they explained they're like well we're used to sort of getting in trouble if we don't clean up our stuff and take it home um they had never felt like it was their own they had never felt ownership of of their own parish um, the other thing that, that I realized, too, by looking at the use of uh, personal parishes and building negotiation is that buildings actually become a way to broker peace in a highly polarized Catholic context. Uh, this happens in a few different ways. Um, one, for example, some really funky uh, parish line drawing, boundary drawing. Okay, so even for territorial parishes, um, the uh, diocesan staffers who are charged with, and they often have these great tools of ArcGIS and otherwise, uh, and they map out where all the prisoners live, and then they try to get the boundaries just right. But you can see, I mean, it's a little bit hard to see in this picture, but um, this, this particular example is from the Diocese of Rockford. Uh, the boundary lines tend to be really funny, and sometimes there's, there's no way to make a boundary line that encompasses logically where all the prisoners are coming from, which can sometimes drive a personal parish decision too, to designate one as a personal parish, because they're coming from all over. It's essentially a gerrymandering. All right, it's, it's the, the, this is the, the tail wagging the dog. So they're actually figuring out where parish, parishioners are coming from and then drawing parish boundaries accordingly um, as a way to say this is the territorial parish, which is, yeah, which, again, is sort of the tail uh, wagging the dog. Um, you also have, and it's because people are, are choosing, you know, they're choosing where they want to go. Um, you also have examples, really interesting examples of, in some cases, parishes um, being split into two buildings because Catholics can't get along. Um, this first example is a, a priest who talks about, well, they had sort of excess buildings. They had two buildings to use. And so the, the priest, and, and the race factor is important here, too, because one of them was predominantly Hispanic Latino and the other one was predominantly African American. And they couldn't get along. And so the priest is an African American priest, um, essentially says, well, cool, I'm, I'm not going to try. Like, you know, I'll let them be in this building. And it was a few blocks away. And they'll be, and so one parish, two buildings. One pastor, one parish, two buildings, um, to to alleviate that racial tension. Uh, this one is from a Latin, Latin mass uh, example, who you know essentially says, "Well, you know, we've we've got our space. If you don't like it, you can go somewhere else." Um, so the buildings become almost a um, containment strategy. This is just uh, one example from San Jose, a group of Vietnamese Catholics who lobbied for decades and decades to get their own parish, only finally did when there was a fire um, in a parish, which I guess gave the bishop a way to rename the parish. Um, there was some sort of Catholic rule about that. And so they renamed it Our Lady of Lavang. Uh, but they had called this group dissenters before it was really quite contentious. <coughs> 
So we see in this how, you know, oftentimes niche, niche Catholic groups get stymied by institutional elites and the other structured structures um, of Catholicism, but also just other local Catholics and trying to make place. Um, so personal parishes end up being a, a strategy, but one that is very much, um, uh, you know, a synthesis between that bottom up and that top down of, of trying to, to make place that works for everyone. The other example that I'm going to pull from is looking at uh, what might be called colloquially church conversions. Um, here too, you know, here we're thinking about if we're restructuring parishes to try to accommodate, to make place for Catholics, um, then what happens to the parishes that are actually closed? Or if you decide, well, we can't afford all these, and you, if they don't, if they can't be ter territorial parishes, they can't be personal parishes, then what happens to them? In fact, in the, the survey of dioceses that I did, um, some 62% of US, U.S. dioceses said that they had closed, suppressed, or merged parishes um, since 2002. Uh, so this is particularly acute. And what this does is uh, create, in some cases, what diocesan uh, representatives have told me is what they call excess property, essentially. All right, so if you're closing parishes, then you have these buildings. And what do you do with the buildings? Um, so, you know, they try to the extent possible to sell off other stuff first because the church, there's something about the church building means something different. Uh, but then oftentimes they'll have to actually sell the church itself. And then you get these really, really interesting real estate listings with churches. You can find these locally here in Durham too. I've looked at some of them. Um, and this is a mix of not just Catholic spaces, but there's a whole market for churches um, in terms of real estate, in terms of redevelopment. Uh, in terms of creative reuse. So these get sold. And what happens then in some cases right, is that church conversions actually lead to Catholic displacement. So Catholics, that, that place that Catholics made, sort of that, that place attachment they may have had gets undone. Um, I've already said that, that parishes and placemaking is not just bottom up. And we know, too, from the example of parish closures, how contested and heated that can be. Uh, certainly in, in Boston, for years, there were folks who, who had vigils um, in parish buildings because it meant so much and there was place attachment. And they did not want those spaces to close. Now, every, they're going to have another parish, right? They're going to be reassigned, but they didn't want that building, that place to close. Um, this is one in, in Boston, actually, that had a vigil for years, um, St. Augustine's, uh, and... It's, you can't really tell, but it's, it's apartments now, it's condos. So I, I took this picture a few months ago. Um, it's, it's no longer used as a church, right? It's used as condos, which is actually the most common uh, outcome for, for church conversions is residences and, and spaces such as that. But parish space is not wholly owned by lay Catholics, right? So it's not just bottom up. Parish outcomes are not, this is not a decision that this, these parishioners would have agreed with. So in some cases, Catholics are displaced. Um, we can also see that church, the, the whole idea of church or local Catholicism, Catholic placemaking begins to take on some different meanings, All right? So it reappropriates sort of Catholic culture and Catholic place into something else, you know, maybe another type of collective good, whether it's housing, I mentioned housing, retail, business, leisure, community. Um, there are lots of examples uh, of this. Uh, this is an interview I did with an architectural firm who had done a church re, uh, a, a re, re, adaptive reuse, right? So sort of rebuilt this structure. And his reaction essentially was, well, you know, the diocese was, was selling off these parcels. And we thought, oh, this could be great. We recognize that it's bittersweet, this sort of place displacement. Uh, but we're recreating it now into something else. And you have some fascinating examples of this. Um, this is in, in Boston, you know, an old German Catholic neighborhood uh, that now um, has been redone uh, into a set of condos. Um, and they, they essentially retained the exterior of it, but gutted entirely the interior and built a glass structure. They didn't want to try to recreate the materials of the original church building. They wanted to respect and, and be mindful of that. Um, and so they did different materials. So it's this really interesting contrast. Um, this is actually in Edinburgh, and I thought this looked kind of similar. Um, this is a hotel space. Um, so there's some, some uh, I think, you know, conversation architecturally happening there. And I'm, I'm not an architect, so I don't have that, 
that um, language sociologists call architects and others in this world place professionals, right? <laughs> Ways that they're, they're rethinking place. So it's sort of marking these the communities as Catholic in some ways, um, but, but it's also changing it. These are a couple quotes from, um, this is uh, someone who's involved in the uh, development of old churches, right? And sort of what, what happens to old churches. Um, and, and then this one too, indicating, well, you know, there's something else going on here, right? You have, if you have dioceses having to restructure and get rid of some churches, um, then this is a way to essentially bring new life and breathe something new um, into it. But it also retains and it speaks back to the old um, sort of symbolic placemaking of Catholicism in cities, in urban spaces. Some places, of course, you'll, uh, like I, I interviewed the, uh, um, someone from the Archdiocese of New York in Manhattan, and Man in Manhattan, of course, the property value is so high that unless it has historic preservation status, then they'll, they'll just tear it down um, because the, there's so much money to be had from it. They just can't retain the actual church building. All right, so what this ends up doing, sort of advancing the story of church buildings and the last sub point on this one, is that um, I think it's sort of starting to reintroduce this notion of the very idea of what is church in the city, sort of what does Catholic placemaking look like or what does religious placemaking look like in the city um, as this combination of both um, a, a social and material construction of religion in the city. You know, I've, I've used the metaphor before of if we think about church as the locus of our activity and community in much the way that a, a television is the focus oftentimes of a family room. We sort of orient ourselves around it. Um, what happens in the case of a, a parish that closes, the church building is viewed then as excess property and it converts into housing or um, a rock climbing gym or a bar or a library. I mean, there's so many examples of this. Um, what does that mean in terms of understanding uh, the role of religion and community in the city? Sociologists Brenneman and Miller um, have written about how religious buildings, quote, shape and are shaped by religious congregations and other actors. Their construction often involves tension and excitement. They provide a venue through which the past can continue to influence the present. So I did ask, um, you know, in all these conversations I've had so far, I asked, well, is it still a church? Is it still a church? Still a church? You know, you're looking at the space. What, what is it? You know, in part, I asked my, my six-year-old this question. You know, he sort of looked like, you know, he'll say, well, he looks for certain things, you know, like, oh, there's a cross. Like, I think that's the church, you know, is it? Um, and, and oftentimes, you know, he'll say, we'll sort of hedge a little bit. Right? Like, no, it's not a church, you know, it's, this guy's talking about it's adaptive reuse. You know, buildings change, time change. You know, some, somewhere along the way it stopped being a church. And, of course, there's a specific, uh, you know, canonical <laughs> process for this, too, on the Catholic side. Um, from another interview, same question. Is it still a church? Or when did it stop being a church? This is one that's being converted into a combined brewery and boutique hotel. So here we see, you know, circling back to the idea of sort of, you know, the congregation, the gathering, the people. Um, you know, maybe maybe it's not the building, maybe it is the the uh, you know, the, the people who are who are gathered in it, where two or three are gathered, right? Um so they, these things happen in parallel, right? The sort of place attachment, the structural material uh, placemaking that Catholics do, which you know can't be totally um, dis, uh, disentangled from the social and cultural placemaking they do as people in communities and with each other. <coughs> yeah, one, one more on it not being the church anymore. <coughs> So for me, and as I mentioned, this particular piece is, is a newer project, project. So for me, it raises questions about, you know, what, what it is the role of religion and community? How do you sort of do community, especially in these contexts in which there's such massive change in terms of actual infrastructure and buildings and space? Um, so I circle back then uh, at the end to this sort of reconciliation of this process. Oh, well, one more, sorry. Speaks church some language. Mm 
All right, so I circle back then to this idea that, you know, when we talk about placemaking, whether it's for Catholics or other local religious adherents, you know, it's both social and material. We have to understand it conceptually uh, through more of an ethnographic, agency-driven approach to understand through how lived religion, people are making place and uh, doing religion on the ground. But just seeing the buildings and the role of buildings and all this, it's a reminder that this is not just a bottom-up, agency-driven process. In fact, institutional elites, uh, both, you know, I focus especially on, on church authorities here, too, but we can also talk about city authorities, um, you know, even real estate, other sort of place professionals um, who come to play a part in this. And so that, that shaping of placemaking is very much both agency-driven and structural. And as such, we can better appreciate um, how placemaking uh, showcases the dynamics of local Catholicism uh, happening on the ground. Thank you very much. So we have plenty of time for some questions, or comments, and discussion. Who'd like to go first? Thank you. So I know you're early on in this project looking at, at the repurposing of churches. Have you or do you plan to interview former parishioners who go back and talk yeah. about what is it like to go to a bar that yeah. is in my, yeah. what was my church? Yeah, absolutely. This is my plan. So the interviews that I've done so far have been almost like walking tour interviews. So it's a very creative method. So I've gone through with developers and architects on that side. And so what I'm trying to do at this point, which is hard if they're older conversions, so I'm trying to get newer conversions, um, but to the extent possible, yeah, do the same sort of walking tour um, with former parishioners. Um, I reached out, the Facebook page that I showed, I reached out to those folks at uh, the point, haven't, haven't heard back yet. Um, so, you know, that, that, that will be next, next step. Because I think that folks like even my, my mom, who when she was visiting, um, I was in Scotland last time she was here, she ate in some beautiful converted church that was in a restaurant. And as a Catholic, you know, she was just saying, oh, it was just, it just didn't seem right, you know, it felt wrong. And, and I want to elicit that, that pain, really, in interpretation of the space. It's sort of the un, un-placemaking, or whatever yeah. it is that's mm-hmm. happening. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was sort of wondering, I guess on that end of the pain, whether there's some sense of failure, loss, diminishment, warning, which people sort of jump over when they say, but it's a new community and it's a new thing that we're doing right. and it's, there's elements of history retained in the beginning, all of which are true, but it's, there's this sort of temptation to go straight to the positive narrative, what new thing it is, without actually acknowledging yeah. a sense the community has failed, that yes. no longer wants to gather here, there's no longer enough of us, or all these kinds of yeah. And part of what I'll be mindful of as it moves forward is thinking about who this is coming from, because I think the positive message is coming from <coughs> The architects and developers like, yeah, it's great. You know, this is a fun project. Um, but yeah, messages of pain from the diocese or, or former parishioners. Um, another really interesting thing is that I've come across already some uh, in church sales. There sometimes will be a stipulation that says it cannot be another church, which at first I was really confused by because I thought, well, it was a church. It would work well as a church, but but it was this failure message because. Um, they didn't want it, it to look like that, that denomination or whoever had failed and look, the evangelical must be winning, you know? Um, and so, yeah, that can come through in, in documentation too, so I'm eager to find more of that too. Yeah. As an example, there's a nightclub in Edinburgh called Sin that's in a former church. And that's a really cute uh, example of it. But as a practical outworking of this, I wonder if there's a responsibility of bishops and dioceses um, in how this interrelates with gentrification. And you touched on this a little bit, but sort of people of colour having a particular parish in the cities and then that church being taken over as a personal parish for rich white people who want a Latin mass. Yes. Spot on. Yeah. Yeah, you're spot on. Um, I'll, I'll say actually for the first note, I have been intrigued by how many of these converted church spaces will take on names like Sin or the Devil's Place or, or Alien, you know, the one in Edinburgh is a rock climbing, it's Alien Rock, you know, the sort of otherworldly. So I, I actually think that's worth exploring more. Um, but yeah, I mean, gentrification is a huge part of this. I mean, the, to me, and I write about this in, in my book in terms of thinking about personal parishes, it actually goes a lot back to bishops thinking not about parishes but about dioceses and sort of the interrelationship between dioceses because that's their jurisdiction. 
ultimately. Um, and so, you know, you have to think about how do these pieces fit together. And, um, and race becomes a huge factor in how parishes are constructed. You know, I, I didn't mention explicitly, but if you look both at congregations at, um, overall in the United States, but the Catholic parishes specifically, um, the vast majority are uniracial, um, which sociologists define as um, there's, let's see, one group constitutes 80% or more of the parish. One racial group constitutes 80% or more of the parish. So among all congregations, nine in ten congregations fit that dynamic, right? So are, are interracial. Among Catholic parishes, it's a little bit less. It's closer to eighty-five percent. But even then, it's like you know, Catholic parishes get get marked as multiracial or sometimes called multicultural. Um, but what it often means, back to supersizing, is that you know the Latinos have the noon mass, you know the white rich white Catholics have the ten a.m. mass. They've never even seen each other. I mean, I would come and uh, have some of these conversations with Catholics, but they would have no idea that there were a group, there was a group of Haitians meeting at one o'clock. Um, not to mention that they wouldn't get the best mass times too. Yeah. Um, how much is the problem because we have, if you like, crystallized the church has only used for services? Because in medieval mm -hmm. times, the village church was the place you had the market. Yeah. It was the place that was used by the community, not just for religious services yeah. and sort of in the end of the 19th century we tended to put benches in you know kind of before there were benches when it was open floor you could use it flexibly and we've moved it into a yeah. niche role that then we have a problem going back into community use yeah. because we've lost that that um, <laughs> understanding is that, yeah. is that that's a, I really appreciate that question because that's a helpful way to think about it. Almost because the church building sort of contains religion, like religion happens there. It's a sort of a secularization argument, right? Almost the privatization of religion, but in church buildings. Um, and it doesn't happen elsewhere. So then, yeah, once you expand that out, what does that, that look like? That's a great question, Louise. Thank you. Uh, I was particularly struck in what you said about um, the church extreme insensitivity that one group of Catholics had towards another, which is really, uh, I would have thought it was complete sight of, of what the gospel is, you know, a total lack of charity. Yeah. In, is that yeah. what the church has thought? You know, I was very struck by that. Right. Yeah, so this has gone very wrong there, I think. Yeah. This to me, it, in writing the book, too, about personal parishes is one of the greatest ironies is that if the territorial parish worked for better in, in this sort of, you know, intention as it's designed to welcome all in its midst. And that's putting aside issues of residential segregation, which already sort of de facto drive divided parishes. But we'll, we'll caveat that. Um, then it should be a space where personal parishes aren't needed, right? Now, the only exception with that is that if you have, for example, a big community of Filipino Catholics and they want to have some Bonga V masses, you know, nine days before Christmas and do, you know, sort of massive holistic ceremonies or like the Our Lady of Guadalupe Festival. Um, it's hard, especially if you're in a minority in a parish, to, to feel like you can do that, you know, to own the space. And so many of the particularly um, first-generation immigrant Catholics um, and personal parishes in the U.S. are most common among Asian Catholics, especially Vietnamese and Korean. They would talk about how it's, it's, it's different. If you just have one mass, it's not the same. And so even if you have a territorial parish that can accommodate everybody, you know, we liked having our own parish. But the moral question is there, right? I mean, I, I said at the outset I'm a sociologist, so sometimes I bracket the normative questions, but they're there, and I think about them a lot. Um, so this um, strikes me as kind of just a, a dynamic of a massive amount of change that's going on in American culture at the moment. But that would, it seems like these kinds of things would have happened in our American short history fairly constantly in terms of waves of immigration. So now you've got a whole bunch of Italians showing up and they've got, you know, and so to what extent is this a new phenomenon? To what extent is it just sort of typical of American, the American scene? Yeah, that's a really great, great question. I mean, I think that American Catholics oftentimes tend to have this sort of convenient forgetfulness. Um, in terms of their own history. I mean, there were massive, when you talk about personal parishes as national parishes in the early development of the church, I mean, there were, there were massive um, 
you know, just battles over space and placemaking and the reasons why there are so many different parishes there. So in that sense, it echoes that. Um, but I do mention that I think it's meaningful, sort of post-1965 changes to federal immigration law, which, which got rid of the federal quotas, um, ended up massively changing the racial demographic of the United States. I do think it matters that a lot of the immigrants today are not white. Um, and so, you know, even though there are these sort of battles and, you know, Irish depicted as dark, and I mean, some of that dynamic was there before, but, but the, the, the intersection of race and class matters here. Um, in, in shaping placemaking um, and, and racial hierarchy is, is real in, the, in, in terms of consequence and inequality in the U.S. Um, so I do think some of that has put new pressures on um, that and the fact that the hierarchy of the church does not yet reflect that diversity of Catholics. Yeah. I'm simply wondering, um, I, I think that in England well, we have a long experience of this kind of thing happening. Yeah. But I'm thinking of a particular example of a parish, a large Irish, formerly Irish parish in Handsworth, which was added to by a huge influx of boat people who came with their own priest. Yes. And they began coming to, to Mass at the big ex-Irish Catholic church. Now the problem there is language, among other things. Yes. Um, because they, they, they couldn't speak the language and nobody uh, among the parishioners could speak their language and their priest had very little English as far as I could see. Uh, the, the Irish parish priest tried to get the parish to integrate but he said it was practically impossible. The Irish, he said, do, ve do be very racist, but I don't think it was that right. <laughs> 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 it was partly, but it wasn't only that, you see. Yes, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. So language and language as a carrier of culture. Yes. Um, and yes. so it, it creates massive dividing lines. Um, and the other thing that I would throw in, too, is generations. I mean, even within, the, so for example, some of the Vietnamese um, parishes in the States, some of which were very much formed out of the legacy of, of both people. Yes. And, um, We'll talk now about the inter-parish conflict they have in their Vietnamese personal parish between first-generation sort of older legacy Vietnamese Catholics who speak Vietnamese predominantly, um, and then their kids who don't, who don't want to, or who don't want to go to mass in that, or won't even come to church, you know. Um, and and so you're right. I mean, language becomes a key point of, of tension in how do you. And, and if you're going to have the mass in the native language of the people, right. which native language are you going to have it in? Yeah. Of course, it's very divisive if you do it. Yeah. And I, I don't know what the answer is, but it does seem to me, you know, beautiful ideas about <laughs> integrated parishes. Yes. Well, then you can translate during the Mass, but then it makes for a really long Mass. It's probably also I'm curious about two things. One, just um, do you have examples of successful integration rather than yeah. these these examples of you know forming personal parishes because people can't figure out how to make place together? And also, is any of this um, political beyond um, racial segregation and so forth? In terms of yeah. like thinking, you know, in my experience with U.S. Catholics. Latin Mass is typically among the very conservative um, Catholics, much more, um, much more focused. And so, is it that you know more liberal white Catholics and more conservative white Catholics actually end up creating de facto um, personal parishes as a result of that? Yes, yes, and a lot of them are de facto. Some of them are formally personal parishes. I mean, but they. <laughs> the decrees would say something like, you know, for the traditional Latin Mass, or there are personal parishes for social justice, like a social justice mm -hmm. orientation, which becomes this proxy almost for progressive Catholicism. Um, so it becomes, in some ways, a, a containment strategy in terms of bishops who actually allocate that, like, let's put those Catholics over there. Um, but usually it's more of a de facto, I'm going to church hop and, and choose where I want to go on a variety of political... You know, we say that you say you're sort of race or not race, but yeah, you know, these things sort of, you know, intersectionality, right? So it's a little bit hard to parse them. Um, to your other very good question about uh, successful parishes, um, 
I chose on the denominator, right? I, I was looking for problem parishes, right? Um, and so much of what, what I heard from basically were um, territorial parish refugees. <laughs> and so um, my work, no. But I would point you to, I mean, there are a number of sociologists who are writing about multiracial congregations or otherwise. Um, Kathleen Garces Foley, Corey Edwards, Gerard and Marty, um, you know, Matthews, who work has done some of this. Um, and in the case of Corey Edwards, a woman who's written about multiracial uh, congregations, um, she actually makes the comment at one point, though, that, you know, they will only work to the extent that they sort of reaffirm uh, which she essentially ca captures as white privilege in the space. So, like, as long as it, as long as they work for the whites in the parish or in the congregation, then it'll work. But if they don't, then it's going to cause too many problems. Um, which is a difficult way of saying it's, you know, it's a tough one. Um, Brett Hoover has a book called The Shared Parish, um, in which he describes parishes that that have multiple communities within a single parish. Um, but he, and it's an optimistic book, and he's a theologian um, with a social science orientation. Um, but he writes it, uh, he, he writes, I remember one of his quotes is basically, it's a, a permanent crucible of grief uh, in, in these parishes. And so there's there's a lot of strife and tension. But maybe that changes moving forward. Right? I'll say that. Thank you. Uh, do you I, I'm interested in the, the extent to which the two responses to change might be found in the same example. So I, I'm, I'm thinking of, a, there's, a, there's a, an Anglican church down in the West Midlands I'm familiar with where the church became unviable, and so the church itself decided to repurpose the whole building. Yeah. It became a shopping centre yeah. of ethical stores with a reduced worship space in the, in the attic, mm -hmm. um, serving the local community that was commercial. Yeah. And so it retained its identity, mm -hmm. but it became a different kind of building and a different kind of church as a consequence. Mm -hmm. And it seemed that that would fall into the category of both being kind of equivalent of a Right. Uh, of a personal parish, but yeah. also um, repurposing building. Yeah. yeah. Did you see any examples of, of, of the you know churches themselves, and therefore, of course, the hierarchy endorsing that, yeah. showing that kind of entrepreneurial attempt to repurpose yeah. in a way that combines it? Yeah, I actually think that's more common. Um, it's not in my focus as much now because I've sort of chosen again, you know, wanting to see this transition out of quote unquote religious space. But when I've done these interviews, it's come up, you know, usually there's a prioritization of can, what else can we do? You know, we'll sell off, for example, um, a huge number of, of Catholic schools have now closed. And so if they can sell off the school and repurpose the school and they will say things like, well, we don't want it to become, and for some reason, the example is always brothel. We don't want it to become a brothel. Um, but they'll look for something, some kind of group with, uh, a, you know, simpatico in terms of orientation. Um, and so I actually think that probably is more common because, you know, bishops managing their, not only their flock, quote unquote, but their material structures don't want to get rid of, of churches. So I think that, you know, they'll look to do anything they can. The example that you described to me, I think probably uses even a little more agency than most parishioners have. I mean, there might be a way to do that, but that would be, I have to be in close consultation with the diocese in order to see that happen. And they, they may not be able to control that, that process. Um, but I do think you're right. I think it's probably a um, staged process and that oftentimes would be what happens first. Yeah, good question. Yeah. Um, your, your focus is, is on place, um, but in the church in America, when dioceses look at how to use parish buildings, yeah. are they primarily looking at how do we preserve and reform place and identity? Or are they looking at missional resources and how do we um, raise money to use in, in other things? I'm, I'm very conscious that the Church of England puts its focus entirely in missional resources yeah. and not at all in place. Yeah. Um, so I'm intrigued to have that balance. Yeah. Have, have you seen any tension between those two things. Yeah. The, the reason it's difficult to answer that question in part is because, you know, bishops um, have an enormous amount of uh, power, if you will, in their diocesan context, and they don't, um, they don't walk in lockstep with one another. And so I would get very different responses from different bishops. Um, and so just bishop, bishops essentially become, um, they're positioned to adjudicate local need. So, like, for example, in some dioceses, uh, you would have Catholics, groups of niche, purpose-based Catholics meeting for decades, 
and that they would never get personal parish status because the bishop just didn't do that, didn't want to do it, didn't believe in it, didn't agree with it, no matter how much they lobbied or petitioned for it. Um, others, including some examples here, you know, bishops who used it as a tool to be able to sort of balance both space and um, and community need. The way that they would describe it, I think, would absolutely be in your language in terms of um, needs and mission. So for me as a sociologist, I'm sort of listening to this and then putting it in the context of resources and structure and thinking about outcome-wise, what else does it mean? Kind of going on from that, does like likelihood to provide personal practice or perhaps to provide personal practice to certain groups um, kind of correspond to certain like individual ethos of the bishops? Yeah. Like, do you find like certain more conservative dioceses would be more likely to? Yeah, this is a really good question. So I partnered with, at one point, a sociologist who had mapped out all of these characteristics of bishops, both in terms of politics and background and where they were trained. And so we sort of tried to get us in. And, and then, you know, there were some things. Um, interestingly, um, conservative, quote unquote, and this, this is a little muddy, right? But more conservative bishops are actually more likely to um, start personal parishes even for even non-conservative personal parishes, which I think goes back to this sort of containment strategy. Um, so it, it's a question that I think is worth exploring more because there probably is a way to track better, um, both in terms of bishops' leadership style and background and the context in which they work to better understand sort of when and why and how. Um, you know, so at the time of the national survey that I did, it was there were 178 dioceses, so it's pretty, it's pretty small in. So stats-wise, there's not a ton you can do with it, but you can still kind of tease out and at least ask some questions about what might predict the outcomes. But they really are very different outcomes. I think we're about out of time. Um, Tricia, it's been fantastic to hear about your work and to get into a really good conversation about what the American scene <laughs> looks like and what a sociological analysis can do to illuminate it.